So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, as Jake said, good morning. Welcome to Riverwood. Uh, my name is Aaron. I've not had a chance to meet you yet. And uh, we are continuing on in our series called Genuine Joy, where we are studying the book of Philippians. When I was four years old, I loved to fly. I, despite what the adults around me said, I knew that I could just take off, off the ground and I could soar. I have memories of flying from the slide on my swing set all the way across the backyard to the fence. I, I also have memories of flying in the basement in our living room and flying behind the, the couch up and down. I loved to fly. Now, there, there were a few limitations on my flying. I, I couldn't fly in the winter. I, I think I needed warm air. So I could only fly, you know, in, in the summer. So every spring I would try to, you know, like practice to get ready to fly during the, the summer. I also couldn't just keep soaring forever. I had about a 20 to 30 foot limit. I, like really going from the slide to the, the, across the backyard, that was about as far as I could go. And also, I wasn't like super, super fast. It was faster than walking, but, but I wasn't like the flash, you know, where I could just get from one spot to the next or, or Superman going around the earth, you know, turning it backwards. I could just, you know, only go just kind of a more normal speed. But I could fly. Despite what the adults said, I knew the truth. So you can imagine my surprise when, as a five-year-old, I'm getting ready to go fly again. Because this is what you do every summer. And I, I couldn't get off the ground. And then by age six, I start to realize, oh no, maybe only little kids can fly. Like, now that I'm a big six-year-old, I'm now stuck on the ground forever. And it was really depressing. Now, obviously, you've probably started to figure out that I had had dreams when I was three and four of flying. And because my little four-year-old mind couldn't distinguish between fact and fiction, I didn't see those as dreams. I took that as being memories. And so I really thought I could fly. But then the truth was, I was a normal human. I wasn't Superman. I was stuck on the ground. Have you ever believed one thing only to discover that the exact opposite was true? Maybe you, had th you just knew without a shadow of doubt that that little fourth grade boy or girl had a crush on you. So you wrote a love note to them and then they treated you as if you had cooties. The truth was the opposite of what you had expected. Or maybe you applied for a job or a promotion at work and you, just, you knew this job was yours to lose. I mean, you had it. 
and then they give it to someone else, and he really did lose the job. Or perhaps uh, you, you just knew the truth was you could afford that car, but then within just a few months or years, the collections agency is calling, and you start realizing the truth. Your budget could not afford this. Sometimes we believe one thing is true, but the exact opposite is the truth. I'm reading Daniel Pink's book, Drive, uh, right now. And in chapter four, he talks about ROWE, R-O-W-E, a results-only work environment. It, it flies in the face of cultural norms for, for work. Uh, most of us know that conventional wisdom is that if you want your employees to be productive, they've got to show up at a specific building at 8 a.m. They work all day until 5 p.m. They get one hour off for lunch and two weeks vacation for the year. That, like We just know that's what is going to make things productive. But in his book, he talks about a software company that adopted this row me methodology, results-only work environment, and they stopped telling them you had to come in at a specific time. And so some people started rolling in at 10 a.m. Uh, some people took off at 3 because their kid had some you know, uh, work, I mean, a, a school event. Uh, some people, they were just like, you know what, I'm going to make this a three-day weekend. Now, the truth is, everyone's going, wait, that won't work. Everyone's going to abuse this. You're not going to be productive. But what this software company discovered was that, that everyone was far more productive. Not only that, the employees were happier, and they made more money than they ever had before. The thing that sounds wrong ended up being the right thing for that company. Sometimes we believe one thing to be true when the opposite is the truth. I just read from Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and there's a little section in that that sounds wrong. Now, now I know it's the scripture, oh, it's, it's, it's true, but if we really start to analyze it and think about life, we start realizing that our behavior would reveal that we believe what Paul said was wrong. Here's what I mean. We go about life trying to get joy by getting we, we think that we'll be happier if we just could get a new phone or we get a new car, or we get a new outfit or new shoes. If we could just, you know, take in a vacation or take in a movie or if we could just find a new relationship. If we just get these things for ourselves, then we'll have joy. But what we just heard was Paul was saying, no, 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 joy's not going to be in what you can get. Joy's actually found in what you can give. That, that joy is not found in what you can take in for your own self, but rather what you can do for others. And when you live that life of humility, considering the needs of others before your own, it brings you genuine joy. That's what we're going to see today. So Father, I just pray now as we move into the scriptures that you would be our teacher. You would help our eyes and our ears to be open to what you need to say to us so that you can accomplish in us what you want to. Because I know, Father, that you want to make us like your son. You want us to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So help us today, Father, to see how he lived, to see how he was humble, so that we might go and do likewise. And it's in his name we pray to you, Father. Amen. All right, so let's start there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, I've got it up on the screen for you today. Uh, I'm going to encourage you, if you don't own a Bible, we've got paper copies back on our Give and Grow table. We'd love to give you one of those. Also, if you've got a smartphone and already have a Bible on it, totally feel free to use that. 
or download a Bible to it. That way, wherever you go with your phone, you always have a Bible. All right, today we're in our fifth part in the series. We now come to chapter 2, verse 1, and the first two verses say this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Last week, we heard Paul talking about how he found such joy in the gospel. Uh, we looked at Paul's story just a little bit. and We saw how he had been radically changed by knowing that Jesus really was the Son of God. He was the Jewish Messiah. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of people's sins and rose again from the dead. And then he calls Paul to be one of his apostles, to take the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And, and so Paul found tremendous joy in this, but it cost him everything. I mean, he no longer could have the comfy life he was, he was set to have as a, as a rabbi within Judaism in Jerusalem. He, he ended up traveling the world. He, he experienced poverty. He experienced being mocked. He'd been shipwrecked. Eventually, he ends up in prison, which is where this letter is being written from. He suffered greatly. It cost him everything. And yet, he found such joy in the gospel that in his mind, it was worth it. But did you notice what he said there in verse 2? He says, Make my joy complete. Complete my joy. That means his joy isn't complete. What is keeping him from having complete joy? Because he's got this lasting joy in Jesus. His joy is not complete. Because he says, I, um, basically, I want you to be of the same mind. They were not having unity. In just a few weeks, we're going to end up in chapter 4. And we're going to see him address one of the conflicts happening within the church. Have you ever been part of a church that has conflict? Have you ever been part of a church where there's disunity? If you have, I can guarantee you did not have complete joy. Your joy was lacking. Yeah, you may have had joy in Jesus like Paul, but it was painful to go to a Sunday morning worship service, to have these conversations throughout the week because of this disunity. Right now, one of my friends is part of a very disunified church. This church has been dysfunctional pretty much since it began and it has been so hard for him. In fact, the senior pastor started seven years ago knowing that there were some problems within the church. And for seven years, worked and worked and worked, trying to help this church to be unified. And after seven years of beating his head against a brick wall, the pastor just left a month ago. And now my friend is the only staff member left. And he says, it is so hard. He said, it's so awkward. Like you walk in on Sunday mornings and you can... Feel the tension just in the lobby. It says oh, over there, there's one little group and they're all talking about all that's happening within the church, whining and complaining. And then there's another group over here trying to figure out what is happening with our church. It's so bad. My friend actually just recently, and this is why I was talking to them, he just interviewed with another church. He hasn't lost his joy in Jesus. He hasn't even given up on the church. He just has no joy in such a dysfunctional, disunified church. That he finds himself wanting to be someplace where it's healthy and the focus gets back on making followers of Jesus and not caught up in these other things. Paul is grieved that this church has some disunity. And he loves Jesus. He loves them. But to hear that they are fractured grieves him. His joy is not complete. His joy would be complete, though, if they would be, as it says there in verse 2, 
if they would be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I don't know about you, but even my own family that loves each other and is dedicated, we do not always have one mind, right? You try to get us to pick a movie. It's revealed. We do not have one mind. We are not always unified. How in the world do you possibly do this? No, he tells us, verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In case you haven't noticed, humans are pretty uh, opinionated. Now, now you may be saying, oh, Aaron, really, it doesn't matter to me. I, I, it's not a huge deal to me. No, it's, it's no big deal. I'm, I'm laid back. Things don't really matter. But often we see churches split over things that do. I, I mean, people will leave churches because of preaching. They'll leave because of musical styles. They'll, they'll leave over, you know, changes in, in, in philosophy of ministry. They even sometimes leave over carpet color. I, I used to think the whole thing of churches splitting over carpet color was just an urban legend. Like maybe there was some church that was really unhealthy and that kind of, there was all these things mounting up and that was just kind of the, the linchpin that caused the explosion. But no, I met a pastor from Southern Kansas probably about 20 years ago. And he said about a year before he was voted in as the pastor, the church had built a new wing. And in that new wing, they'd voted as a church what kind of carpet to have. And the majority voted for one. The minority hated the majority vote and they left. And they really did do a, it's my way or the highway. Because when they didn't get their, their way, they jumped on the highway and headed to go find another church all because of carpet color. Now I, I see some of you, you're, you're shaking your head. You're rolling your eyes. You're thinking, oh my goodness, like how immature can you be? And yet, if we really look at it, we're really not that different. We, we, we might not leave over carpet, but if suddenly Riverwood were to decide to have heavy metal as our music, I, I might leave. <laughs> you know, my, 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 uh, my uh, guy that lived next to me in college, his name was Matt. Nicest guy you could meet, always smiling, just really great guy. And Matt loved heavy metal. Yeah, he didn't have the long hair and that really cropped short. I mean, the guy looked like he was about to become a Presbyterian minister. But he would pop on, and by the way, that's, that's not Matt. Uh, Matt loved heavy metal. And, and I just couldn't take it. Like, I could handle one, two, maybe three songs. But after a while, like, they all sound the same. Like, oh, do something different. Matt, though, if he was part of a church and they, their primary vehicle for musical worship was heavy metal, he'd love it. He wouldn't be raising his hands in worship. He'd headbanging in reverence. This is how tribes get formed. Yet you have the heavy metal church making fun of the pop music church. And the pop music church makes fun of the, the hymn singing church. And the hymn singing church makes fun of the cowboy church. And the cowboy church looks at the heavy metals and thinks they're nuts. And they each get into their little tribe. Because we all know that only people who truly love Jesus worship with my musical preference, my preaching style preference, with, you know, the lights on or the lights off. It's got to be done my way. That's the real followers of Jesus. And anyone else who does it different, they clearly don't love him as much as me. And I shouldn't even be part of the same church as them. 
And, and then when you find people who are part of different tribes within your church, especially if they are in leadership of your church, they leave because it's not being done my way. Paul says the only way you're going to have this sort of unity is if you will actually put the interests of others before yourself. This week, I was, uh, while well, trying to get my lawn mowed before all the rain came, I was listening to a podcast, and it was an interview with uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. Uh, some of you may have heard of R.C. Sproul Sr., and it actually turns out that R.C. Sproul Sr. wasn't really just senior. He was actually R.C. Sproul III, and so that guy right there is R.C. Sproul IV. And I wasn't really that familiar. I, I know of R.C. Sproul, the, the more famous guy. Wasn't really that familiar with his son, but it turns out about two, three years ago, uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. had, I mean, yeah, Jr., the fourth, had some very public sins. So much so that it caused him to have to step down from his father's public national ministry. It, it caused him to have to step out of leadership within his church. And I actually was online this week, and there are some people who really do not like this guy, claiming he has not fully repented and just kind of downright mean. So it was fascinating listening to this interview from a guy who didn't really know his story. And there were several things he said that, that were really good, but there was one thing that stuck out to me because of, of today's passage. He is now part of a church that does not hold to the same tenets as his previous church or what his father used to espouse. And he hasn't left those beliefs. He still holds very firm to certain things. You know, th things in the, the range of Calvinism versus Arminianism or, or things with, you know, baptism and, and, and modes and, and who should be baptized. And he's got very firm beliefs and the church he has chosen to be a part of is different than him. And he says, but the reason I can be a part of it is because these guys seem really dedicated to helping me find healing, to come underneath God, to hold me accountable. And they hold Jesus tightly. He says, so these other things, I, I can hold them on. He says, I'm still committed to them. But he gladly and willingly can come into submission underneath the leadership of his church and allow the elders and pastors of that church to help love him, to disciple him, and help him to heal from his very public sins. You have no idea how refreshing that was for me to hear. Because as a pastor, I always hear about the disunified churches I hear about the members that get angry about sometimes the smallest things that, that will leave because, well, they don't believe exactly as I do. And so to actually hear someone say, yeah, I hold differently than my church leadership, and yet I know that this church leadership loves Jesus, and they're committed to helping me follow Jesus. And so this is where I'm going to be right now. He was willing to put the interests of others before his own. He didn't make it about himself. He's making it, in a sense, about Jesus. It, no, notice Paul is, is saying there to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to consider others better than yourself. Right? Like actually like consider them as being better. That, that's the opposite of so many of us. Now, some of us, we struggle with low self-esteem. It's easy for us to go, yeah, <laughs> he's way better than me. But for a majority of us, we, we get caught up in this comparison game. We're like, man, why can't I be more like that? Why can't I have that? Why, why can't I be talented like that? And all it does is it tears us down and it rips us apart from them. Rather than us finding a joy in the way God has gifted someone else, we find sadness in that we don't have the same gifting. 
And Paul's saying, no, you got to turn this around. But then notice what he says in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Notice he did not say, let each of you ignore his own interests. So in other words, Paul's not asking you to completely deny yourself. It's not that you are worthless and the other person is the only one with worth. It's just that so often we live with a very selfish mentality instead of realizing, hey, this other person has just as much value as I do. If you've ever been in an abusive relationship, these verses sound dangerous. This sounds like it could trigger you. Because in an abusive relationship, the other person tries to get the, the uh, abused to make it all about them. And they will manipulate them physically, emotionally, verbally to try and get the other person to be all about their interests. I don't think that's truly loving them. Because to abuse someone means to, in a sense, deny the image of God in them. So when you start berating them verbally, you start manipulating them emotionally, you start using your hands on them physically, you are not honoring them. And that is sin. And so for you to remain in that sort of relationship is merely allowing them to continue in their abuse. Now, I don't have time to go into it today. It's very difficult and dangerous to escape those relationships, but sometimes the loving thing is to get out. It's to get away. To not let them continue in their sin. That maybe you escaping is going to be exactly what God uses to help open their eyes and they start realizing their own sin. So Paul is not saying, be a doormat, be abused. Not at all. And notice he says the word interest. It's not just their desires, whatever they want. It's what is going to be best. What is in their best interest. And that is hard because so often people will make it known what they want, but what we need to do is find what is going to be best. What do they need? And so to help us figure out how do we do that, Paul immediately turns it and points to Jesus. Join me in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, I'm back. <laughs> anyway, the... I want you right now to think of someone from uh, history. Just pick one of the greatest leaders that you could possibly think of. Julius Caesar, Gandhi, Martin Luther King Jr., George Washington. I mean, pick someone. All right. you, could buy, you might think of someone who was such a great leader that they built an entire empire. Or, or maybe a leader who established a religion. They, they impacted millions of people. And yet they did not create the universe. Like they could not just say a word and heal someone. Like there is no one like Jesus. Even if you pick another religious figure, they may have started a, a religion that has impacted tons and tons of people, whether you think of Muhammad or, or Confucius, and yet none of them died and raised themselves back to life. There is no one like Jesus. And so if someone does not need to be modest to not exhibit humility, it's Christ. And yet, what does Paul say here? 
Jesus, though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He wasn't going to hold on to it and use it and abuse it over us. He sets it aside and comes down and takes on the form of a human. He was fully God, but he then became fully human. And he lived among us, entering into our suffering, becoming obedient to this life, even going so far as to die on a cross. Now, Jesus was the only person to have ever lived who did not have sin. So if anyone did not need to die, it, it was Christ. The penalty of sin is death. So Jesus doesn't need to pay it. But he did for us. You see, he had our best interest in mind. It may not have been exactly what we wanted. It's exactly what we needed. You see, Jesus did not need to die for himself. This was not in his best interest. He did it for us. He's the most humble person who ever lived. Because that's the character of nature of God. He's a humble king. And Paul is saying, it's hard to put the interests and needs of others before your own. But Jesus did it for you. And if you are going to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived, you are going to need to go and give your life for others. Not to die on a cross, but to give them your time, to give them your energy, to give them counsel, to give them love. You just give yourself away. That's the Christ-like thing to do. There's a uh, series of videos on YouTube, and I, I think you can get them via DVD, uh, called I Am Second. Uh, they're really well done, shot really, really well. Usually a, a somewhat famous person sits down in the chair and they share their story. And in a sense, you see their successes, but also their failures. And in their story, they end up sharing how they discovered Jesus and how they've made Jesus the center of their life. And so in a sense, they're saying Jesus is first, so therefore I am second. But I can't help but wonder if what Paul would say here is, no, 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 it's not I am second. It should be I am third. Because it would be Jesus first, and then I put others second. I'm here to serve them, and I put myself third. Not because I'm worthless, but because Jesus has given me everything. So I don't need to use other people to get the things that I want. I, in a sense, trust God to give me what I need, and I can then give to help others. And so it would be Jesus, others, and you. Uh, a long time ago, someone pointed that out to me and said, Do you realize that spells joy? And that's where joy is found. That as you humble yourself and put yourself third, not because you aren't worth it, but because you already have everything through Christ, you now find great joy because you end up being exalted. That's what happens next. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to imagine that you're there in heaven. You stand along the, the golden streets. Angels are lying in the streets. They're flying above. And the resurrected and ascended Jesus comes walking in. The angels go nuts. They start singing. They start blasting off horns. They're cheering. Their wings are flapping. 
he comes waltzing in because they just witnessed the greatest, most epic story that there ever was. They saw Jesus, the Son of God, who had created them, who they saw rule all of heaven and of earth. And they saw him step off his throne, go down to earth, take on human flesh, live a sinless life, but go and die a sinner's death. And then he rose again from the dead and now ascends to heaven. And they are just, they can't believe it. This is amazing. This is stunning. And they cheer. And he walks down those golden streets up to the throne. And he now has the name that is above every other name. That at just the name of Jesus, every knee will eventually bow. Every tongue will eventually confess that he is Lord. He's exalted because he humbled himself. It's why Jesus says that the first will be last and the last will be first. If you go about seeking to try to, to make yourself something, to make your life all about getting, to try and find your joy and, and lift yourself up, you will be forcibly humbled. Whether it be because the things you're trying to get end up not satisfying, or God in his love disciplines you and cuts you down at your knees. But when you seek to put yourself last, make it about Jesus, then others, then you, and you go about to live your life for others, there becomes a joy in that humility, and you end up being exalted. If you're a mom or a dad, you possibly understand this. Because you humble yourself, putting your children before you. You wipe their butts, you feed their faces, you discipline them, you wake up in the middle of the night to care for them, you give up so much for them. And then every once in a while, a moment comes could be Mother's Day, Father's Day, your birthday, or just out of the blue. Your child says a genuine thank you. And they even will say that you're the greatest mom or dad in the world. Not because they're just trying to say it because they've seen the mugs and the t-shirts. They're saying it because they believe it. Because they start to understand what you've given up for them. And as they genuinely share that with you, you find yourself humbled as you're exalted. There is a joy that's found in humility. It's putting ourselves under the leadership of Jesus and putting ourselves in a place to help meet the needs of others, to consider their interests before our own. And when we do this, we find joy because we found our joy in Jesus. We found our joy in these relationships and we find a joy in a unified church. And by the way, this doesn't just work in the church. This will work at home. This will work at your job. This works at school. If you live this way in all of your relationships, you will discover that this humble road, this path of humility, actually will bring you stronger relationships around you. But it means you can't buy into the conventional wisdom that joy is found in what you can get. You gotta start believing the truth that joy is found in what you give. Because as you give to others, you actually find that you get the joy. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us to be a humble people. That we would put you first and then we would look to the interests and needs of others. God, I just pray right now, it's corporate confession. We so often focus on self. We make it about me. God, would you help us to reorient ourselves that it isn't about what we want, it's ultimately about what you want. 
and how we can love those around us. God, I just pray right now for anyone who has a really difficult relationship in their life. Someone who, who is, is demanding, uh, someone who um, keeps them distant. I would pray you'd help us to be a people who would be humble to love them and do what they need, not just what they want, but to truly do what they need. Whether that be someone at work, someone at home, someone at school, that we would truly seek to love them. Jesus, we want to do this for your glory. God, help us to not do this just to be exalted. Help us to do this for you, to exalt you, knowing that as we do so, you will exalt us in the right time, in the right way. So God, help our focus to be on you and serving those around us, knowing that you, you got us, you can take care of us. And this I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen.